0: Hello, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Hardtack. I'm your host, Sam, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mike. How's it going, Mike? You ready?
1: Uh, I'm tired, but yes, I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> long week, long weekend.
0: Yeah. Throwing a really insane uh, kid's birthday party didn't you.
1: Yeah. Everybody bring a Nerf gun was...
0: <laughs> it,
1: sounded, it sounded like a good idea. The kids loved it. That's all that matters.
0: Yeah, that's all that matters. <laughs> HardTech is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content and some crude language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hard Tech. If you'd like to add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on our hard tech socials found via our link tree in the episode description. You can also check us out on our website and leave us a comment at hardtechpod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your hard tech and punch that subscribe button. Thank you. Subscribe. Punch it. (laughs) Punch it. (laughs) In February 1945, the Big Three, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin gathered in Yalta, Crimea, to talk about the reconstruction of post-World War II Europe. Every Allied leader had their own plan for the reconstruction and restoration of Europe. Roosevelt wished for Soviet membership in the newly established United Nations, as well as swift Soviet assistance in the Pacific War against Japan. Churchill promoted fair elections that would result in democratic governments throughout Central and Eastern Europe, particularly Poland. Stalin, on the other hand, desired a geopolitical buffer between the Soviet Union and the Western capitalist world and a Soviet sphere of influence in Central and Eastern Europe, beginning with Poland. Despite the vast differences of new ideas regarding the reconstruction of Europe, an agreement was reached at Yalta. It was decided to split Germany into four zones of occupation between the Allies. The Western Allies were to take the Western Bloc of Germany, and the Soviet Union was to take the Eastern Bloc. The country was initially intended to be governed by Central German administrations as a single entity. However, in reality, each of the Allies ran their zone more or less independently for the first two years of occupation the british and u.s zones joined together economically to form the bi zone in 1947 although they continued to exist as independent political entities around about the same time in 1947 the truman doctrine was implemented from the office of the historian the truman doctrine outlined quote the united states would provide political military and economic assistance to all democratic nations under threat from external or internal authoritarian forces. The Truman Doctrine effectively reoriented US foreign policy away from its usual stance of withdrawal from regional conflicts, not directly involving the United States, to one of possible intervention in faraway conflicts. End quote.
1: It's very obvious when they say external or internal authoritarian forces that they were targeting the Soviet Union here.
0: Yeah, so... <laughs> this definitely would have pissed off the soviet union as soon as this came out.
1: Oh for sure. It's hey, we're not going to get involved directly with the war, but um mm. here's the here's all the political, military, and economic assistance you're going to need to ensure mm. that democracy, uh, western ideals um are are met, further, essentially. you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> met in that in, in that region. And it's it's not too different than from what we're seeing today where the west mm. isn't directly militarily involved in in the Ukraine, but I tell you what, the political, military, and economic assistance is all there in the form of NATO.
0: Absolutely. The three western zones did not formally unite to establish the Federal Republic of West, Germany until 1949, four years after the war's end, while the Soviet Union zone became the German Democratic Republic or East Germany. Also in 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was established to deter the growing threat of the Soviet Union. In response, the Soviet Union formed the Warsaw Pact in 1955. So as the Iron Curtain was drawn europe was officially divided between capitalist and communist ideologies with these drastic changes happening across europe new hostilities were brewing geopolitical tensions rose between the divided europe and a war for supremacy ensued between global powers the cold war predominantly consisted of a hostile nuclear arms race and conventional military deployment though the struggle for dominance was also pursued through indirect means of conflict such as psychological warfare proxy wars propaganda campaigns espionage far-reaching economic sanctions, the space race, and even rivalry at sporting events. And in some cases, strategizing and implementing a coup d'etat to overthrow a communist government. Executing a plan developed and approved by the Eisenhower administration, President John F. Kennedy deployed a brigade of 1,400 Cuban exiles to overthrow Fidel Castro in 1961. You're listening to Hardtack Episode 23, Cold War, Bay of Peaks Invasion.
2: I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. But let the record show that our restraint is not inexhaustible, should it ever appear that the inter-American doctrine of non-interference merely conceals or excuses a policy of non-action, if the nations of this hemisphere should fail to meet their commitments against outside communist penetration, then I want it clearly understood that this government will not hesitate in meeting its primary obligations, which are to the security of our nation
1: in order to understand why the united states intended on overthrowing the castro government using the cia we must first look at the cuban revolution Fidel castro came into power and what that would mean for the united states when former army sergeant fulgencio batista took control of the government following a fiercely fought election the seeds of the cuban revolution were planted batista who had served as president from 1940 to 1944 seized control of the country before the election and declared it null and void when it became evident he would not win. His attempt to seize power infuriated many Cubans, who preferred a government voted in through a democracy, despite the flaws that system possessed at the time. Castro made his move on the morning of July 26, 1953. He realized that a successful revolution required firearms. Therefore, he chose the remote Moncada barracks as his target. 138 men raided the complex at daybreak. The expectation was that the element of surprise would compensate for the rebels' lack of personnel and weapons. The attack was a disaster nearly right away, and the rebels were defeated after an extended firefight and many were taken prisoner. 19 federal soldiers were murdered. The survivors turned their anger on the rebels they had caught, shooting the majority of them. After fleeing, Fidel and his brother Raul Castro were eventually apprehended. The Castros and remaining rebels were tried in front of the people. By making the trial about the power grab, Fidel, a qualified lawyer, turned the tables on the Batista dictatorship. In essence, he said that he had joined the fight against the dictatorship because it was his civic duty as a loyal Cuban. He gave lengthy statements and the government eventually made an effort to silence him by asserting that he was ill and unable to attend his own trial. His most well-known trial related remark was, quote, history will absolve me, end quote. Despite receiving a 15-year prison term, He rose to national prominence and was viewed as a hero by many impoverished Cubans. The Batista government in May of 1955 was under overwhelming international pressure to reform, thus in turn releasing many political prisoners, including those who took part in the Moncada assault. Fidel and his brother regrouped in Mexico to plan the next stages of the revolution. It was there where they met up with Cuban exiles who joined the 26th July movement.
0: And for the listeners that might not have caught on already, the reason why they called it the 26th July movement was because that was the date that they began the Moncada assault. So that was going to be the
1: title for the revolution supposed to kind of inspire that that same fury uh, uh uh amongst the amongst the people call, you know a call back to what they'd already attempted batista was alerted to this news and ambushed them in the highlands though batista had the upper hand in this case castro and his rebels still managed to regroup and resupply enough including taking on additional rebel groups that they were able to confidently move forward with the 26th july movement in the summer of 1958 Batista sent a large portion of his army back into the highlands to attempt to thwart any more attempts at Castro's revolution movement. However, it majorly backfired. Castro's rebels carried out guerrilla attacks on the soldiers, many of which decided to either switch sides or desert Batista's army. The movement made several successful advances towards Havana, capturing several towns and villages along the way, and even countering attacks from Batista's much larger armed force in the siege of Santa Clara which lasted from December 2nd through December 30th. So Castro was ready to commence the final stages of his Coupe de Grasse. Realizing that Castro's victory was inevitable, Batista and his inner circle seized what loot they could and fled. Some of Batista's subordinates were given permission to deal with Castro and the rebels, though you can imagine that didn't work out too well for them. Cubans went to the streets to enthusiastically welcome the rebels. And on January 2nd, 1959, Cienfuegos, Guevara, and their soldiers invaded Havana and disarmed the remaining military facilities. Just one week later, Castro finally arrived in Havana after a long journey that saw him stop in every town, city, and village along the way to address ecstatic crowds. The Castro brothers swiftly established their hold on power, eliminating all traces of the Batista dictatorship, and crushing all of the competing rebel organizations that had supported them and their ascent, Raul Castro and Che Guevara were given the task of setting up squads to pick up the Batista-era war criminals who had committed torture and murder under the old regime so they could bring them to trial and their eventual execution. Despite the fact Castro initially portrayed himself as a hard-hitting nationalist, it wasn't long before he began gravitating towards communist ideologies while openly courting the leaders of the Soviet Union. For many years, communist Cuba would be a significant grievance to the United States, leading to international crises like, in this case, the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis. In addition to living under a new dictator, the Cuban people endured years of hardship as a result of the 1962 trade embargo that the United States enforced. Communism appeared to be spreading over the world, and its philosophy appeared to be in total conflict with American interests, both economically and militarily. Any political contender could only argue that the U.S. needed to take the lead and proactively battle communism around the world. Thus, in response to Fidel Castro taking power in Cuba, the training and planning for the Bay of Pigs invasion began. In March 1960, President Eisenhower officially approved the program. By November, the program had trained a small army for an assault landing and guerrilla warfare after the CIA established training centers in Guatemala. The anti-Castro Cuban exiles in the United States were led by José Miro Cardona. He was the leader of the Exile Committee, the Cuban Revolutionary Council, and a former official in Castro's administration. If the invasion was successful, Cardona was prepared to assume the role of Cuba's president in the interim. Despite official efforts to keep the invasion plans secret, Miami's Cuban exile community was aware of them. Castro was made aware of the guerrilla training camps in Guatemala through Cuban intelligence as early as October 1960, and the news media covered the developments extensively. President Kennedy approved the assault strategy in February 1961, not long after his inauguration, but he was determined to cover up American assistance. Not too different than Vietnam, honestly. A component of the trick was the landing spot at the Bay of Biggs. The location was a desolate, swampy spot on Cuba's southern coast, where a night landing might push a force ashore with little opposition and aid in disguising any American involvement. Unfortunately, the invasion force's landing location placed him more than 128 kilometers, or 80 miles, from the Escombre Mountains of Cuba, they would have sought refuge if things went south.
0: So it's interesting that Castro became aware of the guerrilla training camps so early. Quite frankly, like as far as I'm concerned, I don't think the CIA were aware that they were aware. I just thought that was really interesting that they were able to catch on so quickly. So realistically, this could be this could be an indicator of the, um, I suppose, the starting point to where things started to go wrong. I guess
1: yeah this early on and you know you you see that a lot with some of these high level secretive military operations where it's the locals it's it's these kind of sleeper agents that they catch word of something and and you know things travel through the grapevine you you got this cuban exile community in miami uh people are going to talk and word's going to spread so it's it's almost no surprise uh especially Nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies—you know that time period in the Cold War. I mean, intelligence gathering was crucial; it was everything, and that, that's why we have James Bond and all these spy movies. And that—that's the Cold War. When it comes to espionage, is—is is I mean, that's that time period, and it starts with the small stuff. But I mean, yeah, even back during the American Revolution, George Washington had a spy ring. I mean,
0: oh wow, did he?
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of women. It's a very interesting story, actually. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Very interesting story.
0: Officially codenamed Operation Zapata, the Bay of Pigs invasion during President Dwight D. Eisenhower's administration was a covert operation led by the Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA, in an effort to organize and train expatriate Cubans to establish a base that could be used to trigger a revolt against Castro. The CIA led successful coup operations in the past. Namely, a joint operation with the United Kingdom in Iran in 1953, officially codenamed Operation AJAX. Which actually had a long-lasting effect between, you know, United States and Iranian diplomatic relations. I mean, it fueled a rise in nationalism and that accumulated in the Iranian Revolution of 1979. They also implemented a successful coup in Guatemala under the codename name operation success in 1954
1: fucking creative let me tell (laughs) you also kind of (laughs) kind of presumptuous you know I know,
0: it's like, we're definitely going to win this, so let's just call it a success from the beginning.
1: There's been some <laughs> psychological Operation warfare. names, but that one is just silly, man.
0: It tastes the cake, doesn't it? It does. It, 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 it kind of makes you think, I was like, oh, well, we couldn't think of anything else, so let's just call it this. It's
1: like, it's like that big, uh, that picture of George Bush on that aircraft carrier, or in front of that aircraft carrier, where it's got that big banner, it's like, mission accomplished it's turned into a viral (laughs) meme you know (laughs) oh lord
0: oh my goodness anyway based on the success of these operations there was a growing confidence with the cia to establish a coup wherever the united states required it to okay as an example wherever there was a communist uprising but you might be wondering how could the cia install a coup within cuba and avoid plausible deniability? i have three words rich cuban Dissidents. So basically rich people with an opposition to official policy, especially one of an authoritarian state. From the CIA or United States perspective, you can't be blamed for something if you didn't technically finance it, right? And conveniently have an opposition who happened to be making bank. No paper trail, no proof.
1: This persists today, and it's not just the US. This is like the Mm. game that people play. Harder to hide those paper trails now.
0: Oh, I bet, because we have this... Very interesting concept. Called the internet.
1: Yeah, <laughs> everything so. just is outed.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Initially, the invasion strategy called for two airstrikes against Cuban air bases. While the airstrikes provided the shock and awe and drew Cuban attention, the 1,400 man invasion force would disembark in the night and launch another unexpected assault. Transport would be disrupted, and Cuban forces would be repelled by paratroopers who had dropped prior to the assault. A smaller force would arrive on Cuba's east coast at the same time. The primary force would cross the island to Matanzas and establish a defensive perimeter. The United Revolutionary Front would dispatch leaders from South Florida and set up a temporary administration. There is one critical component to this plan which meant either the success or failure of the invasion. That critical component was the Cuban population, And their joint cooperation with the invaders. And it was really emphasized that the CIA operation really needed the support of the Cuban people. I mean, that goes back to what we were saying earlier. I mean, just the general populace was so critical to gathering any kind of intelligence of things that were happening, um, especially, like, as we talked about earlier in Miami. Like, that's how Castro found out about the training camps in Guatemala. It's the people. And that was going to be critical to the, to the success of this operation.
1: It's always about the hearts and minds. If, if, if you don't have the support of the mm-hmm. populace, your, your success is only going to be military. But if you're looking about if you're looking to to bring about political and, and long lasting change, you've got to have the hearts and minds of the people. Eight B-26 bombers, operated by the US backed Cuban Expeditionary Force, also known as Brigade 2506, flew from Nicaragua to predetermined targets in Cuba on April 15, 1961. In order to lessen the overall signature of the hit, President Kennedy asked that the number of bombers in Operation Zapata be decreased from 15 to 8 just the day before. One B-26 bomber with Cuban insignia landed at Miami International Airport after the B-26 bomber struck Cuba to complete the lie that the attack was being carried out by Cuban defectors and that a turning point had been reached. In order to maintain the appearance of plausible deniability prior to the invasion, which U.S. could then openly endorse as an oppressed people's desire for democracy, this misdirection was intended to convey that the U.S. played no direct role in the attack, simply smoke and mirrors. Due to uncertainty over its operational necessity, President Kennedy ordered the postponement of a second planned round of aerial bombardment by the Cuban Expeditionary Force, which was intended to create ideal conditions for the amphibious landings on April 16, 1961 just a day after. On April 17th, the Bay of Pigs beachhead landing marked the official start of the assault. According to official reports, there were 1,511 personnel, 15 B-26 bombers, 10 C-54 transports, 5 C-46 transports, 2 infantry landing craft, 3 utility landing craft, 4 vehicle landing craft, 7 chartered commercial freighters, and 1 165-foot Cuban coastal steamer, available for the operation. It quickly became apparent that the D-2 aerial bombings had not rendered the Cuban Air Force materially helpless, and this left the invasion force to face tenacious resistance. On April 19, 1961, the invasion force started to lose its combat effectiveness, so President Kennedy approved extra air support for the B-26s of the invasion force from six unmarked American planes for a one-hour period. The CIA and Pentagon, however, neglected to account for the time difference between Nicaragua and Cuba. Thus, the two components never met. That's a stupid mistake. Four U.S. military men were killed while flying B-26s for the Cuban Expeditionary Force, complicating matters further and defying President Kennedy's directive, prohibiting American personnel directly engaging in combat. Castro's armed forces and militia engaged Brigade 2506, between April 17th and 20th, ultimately defeating them and taking 1,197 prisoners, 89 lives, 9 B-26 bombers, two 5,000-ton boats, a communication boat, three of the landing craft, and five troop carriers. While the government refused to publicly recognize the proof of U.S. involvement after the brigade's loss, it was widely acknowledged that President Kennedy had deceived the world both during the operation and in the days that followed. Castro gave the order for about 20,000 men to advance onto the shore during the following 24 hours, while the Cuban Air Force continued to control the sky. On April 19th, before daybreak, President Kennedy issued an air umbrella order as the situation grew dire. Six unmarked American fighters took off to assist in defending the Brigade's B-26s, but because of the time zone difference between Cuba and Nicaragua, Again, the flights arrived one hour late. The Cubans shot them down, and later that day, the invasion was repulsed. Some exiles managed to reach the sea. But Castro's men killed or captured the majority of them. Brigade 2506 surrendered with around 1,200 soldiers and over a hundred were slain.
0: Interestingly, there was an abstract that I was reading for this book um, called In the Shadow of International Law, Secrecy and Regime Change in, in the Post-War World that stated, quote, In the end, the mission was a failure. Consistent with the book's argument, the evidence shows that decision makers were reluctant to openly violate the non-intervention principle by pursuing overt action against Fidel Castro. As a result, they opted for covert operation they knew was less likely to succeed to avoid undermining America's moral authority and to protect the credibility of its commitments. Decision makers were also willing to act overtly if a legal exemption to non-intervention materialized. End quote. Which... Is consistent with Eisenhower and President Kennedy's desire to maintain plausible deniability for the invasion, you know, being financed and led by the Central Intelligence Agency. So I just thought that was fascinating. That makes me believe that they kind of went ahead with the operation knowing that it was going to fail.
1: I f- number one, uh, the, the, the the time zone thing drove me insane, mm. especially because it happened twice. Like, for fuck's sake, people, <laughs> Like
0: <laughs> that's just yep.
1: silliness, but um as much as they wanted things to be again you know smoke and mirrors you know, we're not involved i almost feel like mm-hmm. they tried so hard to conceal everything that it actually led to the mistakes that revealed and exposed their involvement yeah. in the first place like it's self sabotage
0: yeah exactly and you know it's and it was the, like the little things as in as we said before the time zone differences like how does the central intelligence agency do not think about the time zone difference for when, like, taking that into consideration. Like, it's just things like that. And it makes you wonder, like, what was the point of initiating the operation in the first place if if it was set up for failure from the beginning?
1: Uh, And maybe that was the point. You know, if you want to go to that conspiracy, everybody put on your your tinfoil hat. Mm. Was it intentional? Was it intentional? I I don't know.
0: I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose like was a failed operation intentional for the next one to be able to work, I guess. But I I don't really understand. I don't know. That just seems like a a waste of life.
1: It does. I don't know. I mean, the the, the planning was definitely uh, rigorous, but these small critical failure points are just asinine mm-hmm. I, I, so much for operation success right like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> come on I don't... yeah where
0: was that confidence and finesse right. in those operations you know so uh,
1: it's, anyway. it's 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 just silliness
0: during the negotiation phase between the united states and fidel castro the Brigade captors were held captive for approximately 20 months. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy personally appealed to pharmaceutical and baby food manufacturers for donations, and Castro ultimately decided to accept $53 million worth of baby food and medication in exchange for the detainees.
3: Gentlemen of the Brigade, uh, I need not tell you how happy I am to welcome you here to the United States. And what a profound... What a profound impression your conduct during some of the most difficult days and months that any free people have experienced. What a profound impression your conduct made upon not only the people of this country, but all the people of this hemisphere. Even in prison, you served in the strongest possible way the cause of freedom as you do today. And I can assure you that it is the strongest wish of the people of this country, as well as the people of this hemisphere, that Cuba shall one day be free again. And when it is, and when it is, this brigade will deserve to march at the head of
1: the free column. so th- this also probably it might seem strange you know why why medication why baby food but remember this trade is in place mm, this trade embargo is right. in place okay, so what yeah. what what do a lot of those those Cubans need and what is for Castro in power who clearly with the embargo is probably having a hard time taking care of his people what mm. can he do to look good but also you know to, to win the approval of the people. And, and it's things like this. It's the basic needs. And the, and the United States knows mm-hmm. this. So it's like, hey, we'll give you medication and we'll take care of your youth. Give us our people. Yeah. This was a smart, mm-hmm. this was a power play. And it was a smart move. It's very evident that the embargo was having an effect.
0: Oh, yeah, a significant effect on the Cuban population. And if Castro wanted to remain in power and, you know, not be revolted against as he did to Batista, hmm you really need to persuade the hearts and minds of the Cuban people right, um, right. despite the embargo. So Exactly yeah, that. Absolutely.
1: And this is this is a, a, a method and a tactic that's used today and has been used for years. But you, you see it all the time. I mean, it's the people that suffer when politicians decide diplomats have failed and, and, and things turn to warfare. You saw it in Germany mm. in World War One and World War Two. You know, the German mark... Uh, inflation was insane. Uh, mm. I have a I, when I lived in Germany, uh, I picked up in a in a German like antique store a two million mark note. I think I paid five bucks, but they're, oh, they're, wow. they're not worth anything. They weren't worth anything mm. then, and they're really not worth anything today. And it, it just goes to show that as inflation happens, as inflation occurs, and goods become scarce, it's the people that mm-hmm. always always suffer. And we see that here. Yeah,
0: which also led to you know that's. One of the reasons how Hitler became into power, um, because he was able to promise the German people that he would bring them out of the Great Depression. Right. And like that right. As
1: well, so. Yep. You know, when on on our on our Discord server, we had a uh, uh, a friend for a while uh, who I think is has gone inactive, but his his field of study was uh, economic history, which to me, God, please no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my god he was one of the smartest people I've ever spoken with and he he always said you know hey follow the money follow the money and it, it, it's super relevant
0: yeah absolutely. Two months after the Cuban Missile Crisis ended on December 23rd 1962 a plane carrying the b- first batch of released inmates touched down in the United States the Bay of Peaks debacle had a lasting impression on the Kennedy administration though the invasion failed it was not the last attempt of its kind to overthrow the Castro government. The Kennedy administration launched the Cuban project, also known as Operation Mongoose, a strategy which involved a broad campaign of terrorist assaults against civilian targets and covert operations in Cuba to undermine and destabilize the Cuban government and economy, with the potential to assassinate Castro in an effort to atone for the invasion's failure.
1: There it is again. Terrorist assaults against civilian targets, all aimed Mm -hmm. at undermining and destabilizing support for Castro's government. Mm -hmm. And the economy still, with the embargo, suffers.
0: And... The people again suffer because they become targets of terrorist assaults, which is just absolutely horrific. Right. In hindsight, right. Like regardless of the the larger picture, um, the United States is trying to achieve, you know, overthrowing Castro. I mean, I guess it's probably impossible to achieve something like that without, you know, innocent innocent lives taken. But
1: you you've got to inflame the people because uh, it you know in a democratic mm-hmm. nation. The government has power but the government has power because the people elect the officials so the power the power lies among the people at least it should that's 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 Mm -hmm. the idea right so that's the that's the us's mindset here is if we upset the power base which in truth should be the people the government Mm -hmm. will fall but And a more communist-leaning authoritarian government, like Castro's or like Vladimir Putin's, they're false democracies. So you can attack the people all you want; they're not—they don't have the power to truly overthrow because you yeah. have a—you have a dictator in power. Call it what it is—it's—it's a, it's a dictatorship. It's an authoritarian regime. Yeah, yeah. It's modern-day China, and it's modern-day Russia. And
0: Castro initially came in again, as we spoke about earlier, as a nationalist, and you know, eventually he just turned into a um a dictator as well um so basically cuban presidency was um the initial cuban dictator was essentially replaced with another dictator right and it makes me think especially for current events today it makes me feel like you know even if something were to happen to putin and he would you know be murdered or whatever who's to say another dictator won't just take his place
1: you know, oh, yeah. And that's like all over it. the news right now, too. Like, if you, th- there's all these theories and what ifs, and you got these. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. Russian dissenters who've come out and said, you know, he won't make it to see his next birthday. He'll be dead, you know, within the first mm. so many months of 2023. But there's always someone to fill those shoes.
0: Yeah, wherever there's power, I guess.
1: Exactly, yeah, anyway. exactly.
0: So that's it for Hardtack episode 23, Cold War, The Bay of Pigs Invasion, 1961. Make sure to tune in next week for part two of our series on the Cold War. We will pick up with the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening and remember to keep your heart attack
3: dry.